Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This podcast contains the audio from the latest YouTube video that I put out. It was my low back pain presentation to the soldiers and some of the medical professionals at Fort Irwin, California earlier in December. Part two, where Dr. Baraki addresses the medical professionals, is coming out very, very soon. Uh, this podcast also includes the Q&A that we did at the end of my presentation. So Dr. Baraki and I uh, take questions from the crowd, and uh, we try to give them answers uh, to their specific questions. Now, the audio that you'll hear at the beginning is me mic'd up with the lavalier mic. It pretty good. And then also my audio at the end uh, during the Q&A is also very good because, again, I'm wearing a lavalier mic. However, the audio from Austin and some of the uh, crowd participants is not the best. I tried working with the audio to make it as good as possible, and I think that you'll be able to uh, hear okay. But uh, don't judge us by that audio quality. And, and again, Austin's uh, part two of the lecture where he uh, addresses just the medical professionals, medical staff of uh, Fort Irwin, California is coming out very, very soon. We appreciate you listening and hopefully you enjoy. Let's go. So I'd like to just introduce first our, our speakers here, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum on the left and Dr. Austin Baraki on the right. These guys are from a company called Barbell Medicine and they are some of the most uh, foremost subject matter experts when it comes to strength training, combining it with medicine, whether from practical application or from you know having the most up-to-date research and, and deciphering the literature. They've written publications for uh, professional, excuse me, written articles for professional publications um, that we as medical providers reference. And they themselves, I think this is one of the most important things, they walk the walk, right? They're both lift, and not only do they lift, they're both competitive lifters and competed. So, um, you know, they hit it from both the medical side and the, hey, we're actually lifters and do this for a living side as well. Um, Dr. Feigenbaum, on the left, he's a family practice physician, lives in San Diego, and he started the company Marvel Medicine in uh, 2012, primarily to address this gap of, you know, hey, how do we combine strength training with current medical practices and exercise? Dr. Barack on the right, he's an internal medicine physician, and he actually currently works and teaches at San Antonio Military Medical Center at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. So additionally, just so you guys know, we have a little question and answer box um, over the last month, couple months or so. We've collected questions from people coming into the clinics um, or just coming through the hospital about you know, concerns they have. And so after the presentation today, we'd like to field some of those questions with you guys or any additional questions you have. So with that being said, Dr. Feigenbaum, would come on up. Everyone's going to give him a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right. Let's get this pulled up. How many in here have done the new ACFT already? Everybody? A lot of people. Okay, cool. Anybody nervous about it? Nobody. No, that's good. All right, cool. We're done. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to talk about, what I'm going to talk about today uh, is low back pain. Um, what it is, why it happens, and what we can do about it to reduce the risk of it, to manage it, uh, really try to build some self-efficacy uh, and, and your own personal knowledge base about how uh, this applies to your life. So just to give you an example of the scope, the size of this problem, this is the leading cause of disability in almost all high-income countries, including the United States. Uh, it affects about 540 million people worldwide. Uh, the Army actually has the highest incidence of low back pain amongst all military branches. 
So Marines with the lowest, they're like the average, and then the Army has about double the incidence. We don't know why. I'll cut to the chase, I don't know why. Uh, that being said, from 2010 to 2014, there were about six million uh, doctor's visits uh, for low back pain for active duty military, about over six million, okay? Of those over six million doctor's visits, 91% of them were diagnosed as nonspecific low back pain. So not, uh, about 91% of them were diagnosed as nonspecific low back pain. We'll talk about what that actually is, how that applies to you, and what we can do about it. But first we have to back up. What is pain? I know I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands how many of you have had pain. I assume it's everyone. It's part of the human existence, okay? But what, what is it? The way I like to describe it is that pain is an experience. It's an experience that drives behavioral changes or actions in order to protect us from something that we think is threatening, something we perceive as a threat. So anything that increases that threat, so fear, anxiety, learned experiences, people around you, uh, uh, increases the perception of pain. An interesting story happened while I was training at a gym uh, about two years ago. Um, there was a pull-up bar and a, a woman was doing uh, toes to bar up there, so she's bringing her toes all the way up to the bar. She fell off, so about a 10-foot drop, landed right on her back. You walk, are you all right? And then she started crying, and she started holding her back, and she refused to get up on her own after that. She had to go to the emergency room, where she was diagnosed with absolutely nothing. She went home. It doesn't mean that her experience of pain wasn't real, or that it was quote-unquote all in her head. That was a real experience. She really felt the pain but that was influenced by outside things, outside of just biological or anatomical inputs. The people descending upon her and asking her, are you okay? Oh my gosh, lay down. I'm gonna get on WebMD. What do you have? Oh my gosh, you might've fractured three vertebra. That sounds bad. Or a disc sequestration. What is that? I don't know, but it's a long word. It's probably bad. Probably didn't help her. Anything that increases that threat has the potential to influence or increase pain. So if it's not understanding what something means, having fear, anxiety about it, or somebody previously close to you had the same thing and they had a bad outcome. My dad had low back pain for 30 years. He would stay on the couch, for example. It's a learned response. One of the biggest take home points here is that pain is not attributed to just one thing. Rather, it is a combination of uh, different things that are going on. So one, what's going on in your body from a biological or anatomical standpoint. I'm not going to tell you that what's going on inside your body has no influence on pain. Okay. But that's just one aspect of it. It's just one aspect. So what's going on biologically or anatomically. Second, psychologically, what's going on with your mood, your thoughts, your feelings, your knowledge base of the experience that's happening that can influence this perception of threat. And also socially people around you. Okay, the environment you're in, your education level. All, right? all, all of these things conspire, combine together to uh, kind of generate this pain experience or influence if you even have a pain experience in the beginning. To, to kind of make this uh, more clear, I'd like to use uh, uh, this analogy to hunger. Okay, so hunger is another experience that drives behavioral change to protect us from starving. Okay? There are many different inputs Okay, some of these you guys can probably relate to. So bi there are biological inputs for sure, right? Different hormones or metabolic signals can influence us to go seek food to eat, right? But how many of you have been upset or anxious uh, and not felt like eating or have the alternative response where you overate just because you felt sad? Maybe you turn on a little Grey's Anatomy. 
ice cream. Just me? Okay. <laughs> Alternatively, how many of you have been so busy, right, that you've missed multiple meals, and then you look at your watch or you look at your phone and you say, oh gosh, I'm hungry now, because you see what time it is. Or you weren't very hungry and a bunch of people around you started eating, or you went to an event where everybody else was eating, you're like, oh, I should eat. I'm hungry now. Social inputs into your experience of hunger. So again, it's not to say that these things are all just made up or they're not real. These are real experiences. Hunger and pain are both real experiences. They're just multiple inputs that shape that experience. Okay? So in both cases, these experiences are not from a single thing. There's not a hunger generator in the brain, just one area that says, hey, be hungry now. Okay? Just like there's no pain generator, one area of the body that's saying, hey, you're in pain now. Rather, these are experiences that come from a combination of different, uh, uh, different inputs. And they're both normal experiences in life. We wouldn't want you to live a life free from pain. People who have the disorder, this congenital pain and sensitivity syndrome, they tend to die early in childhood from burns or traumas or other diseases. They just can't sense it. You wouldn't want to, li to live a life free from pain. No more than you'd like to live a life free from hunger. You kind of want to be a little hungry, Thanksgiving, just happen, sit down, crush some food, <sighs> satisfying. To never have that feeling again, oh man, wouldn't wish that upon anybody. So we don't want you to live this, uh, or to expect even, to have a pain-free life after you leave this talk, or Dr. Baraki's talk later on, or after the Q&A. Rather, what we'd like to do, we'd like to do is to help the medical staff here, to help you uh, better understand what pain is, where it comes from, so it allows you to be, to self-manage, to be self-sufficient, so you can figure out what to do to not only manage your own pain when you have it in day-to-day -day life, because you're going to have it, okay, uh, but also how to reduce the risk of having pain that interferes with your life, and also to pass the ACFT. So let's move on. Let's talk about what low back pain is specifically. I don't have to tell you guys where your low back is. You guys all know where that is. Um, but low back pain itself is very, very common. Lifetime risk for this for adults is about 85%. So most people in here will have or have had low back pain. Okay? And again, since we're on Army base, you guys have almost double the risk of uh, the Marines and you have the highest, highest risk of all uh, military branches. Again, not sure why that is, but low back pain is very, very common. 85% of all adults uh, will have low back pain in their life. In general, about 90% of this is called nonspecific or is diagnosed as nonspecific low back pain. And this isn't really a term that's used to, uh, this is a term just uh, for diagnostics, okay, to like code it medically, but it's not meant to minimize the experience of the person. To say, oh, it's just nonspecific and brush it off. Rather, it appropriately refers to the fact that there isn't a singular specific cause for this pain. It's not due to a herniated disc. It's not due to a torn ligament or other anatomical issue. All right? It's just nonspecific. Pain that uh, in this case, in the vast majority of all low back pain is not due to any specific underlying cause, no specific pain generator. Uh, the idea that it is due to something, I got to find that one thing, that pain generator is an oversimplification of the pain experience. We talked about this earlier. It's not just one thing. There are multiple inputs. Uh, we, the fancy way of talking about this oversimplification is by calling it the biomedical model of disease. It's a fancy way of saying that a symptom 
low back pain in this case has a single underlying cause. And the thought process behind that is that fixing or removing the underlying cause would fix the problem, remove the pain in this case. Well, this sounds logical uh, in theory. It doesn't really work and can actually make the, pains, uh, the person's pain get worse, last longer, and reoccur more often. Uh, and I'll explain that. So again, most low back pain is not due to an anatomical cause in isolation. So I know you're thinking, you're like, what about herniated discs or disc problems? So herniated discs account for maybe about two to 5% of all low back pain, two to 5%. Not, not a high percentage shot there. So you're like, it's my disc. It's probably not based on statistics. Many of the common things, in fact, that are said to cause low back pain are commonly found in folks with no symptoms at all. We call them asymptomatic individuals because they have no symptoms. So for example, a bulging disc or a herniated disc is found in about 50 to 70% of individuals with no back pain symptoms aged 40 to 49. 50 to 70% of them will have at least one bulging or herniated disc on uh, some sort of medical imaging like an MRI. And they have no symptoms. The joints that connect adjacent vertebra, they're called facet joints. And sometimes if you get imaging like an X-ray uh, or an MRI or a CT, you they might see in there uh, some wording that says, oh, degenerative facet joint. This occurs about 30% of asymptomatic 50-year-olds. As people get older, the percentage goes up higher and higher, okay? And these things, herniated discs, bulging discs, degenerative facet joints, all these sort of things are not reliably found in people with low back pain, which is why we use the diagnosis nonspecific low back pain. It's not specific to any one thing, certainly not just an anatomical thing, okay? Uh, side note, just here, the, using the word degenerative suggests there's something wrong or defective about the structure it refers to. So if we're talking about degenerative facet joint, oh, there's something wrong, this is bad. What's been put forth instead of using the term degenerative is to use the term age-related, which is true. If we see more and more of this degenerative facet joint uh, uh, finding on stuff like x-rays as people age, it's really age-related, especially if it's uh, generally found in asymptomatic individuals and doesn't really correlate well to pain. Imagine if you went to the doctor and you had wrinkles and they called this degenerative skin disease. Or I went to the doctor and he said, hey, what's going on up here, Feigenbaum? I guess it's degenerative hair disease. Like, I, you know, what do you want me to tell you? The problem when you are talking about pain, however, is if you tell somebody that they have a degenerative disease of a joint or structure, right? You've told them, hey, this is fragile. This deserves extra attention, extra care. But also I need you to go exercise. Oh, by the way, there's this new ACFT that you're gonna have to do and you have degenerative disc disease or degenerative facet disease. You're like, well, doc, that doesn't make sense. You just told me that I'm fragile, that this, these structures deserve extra attention, that I'm not whole, and now you want me to go stress these structures? To go train? That doesn't make sense. So as providers, we try to not use those terms and use either age-related or other non-medical terms where people don't, we don't build these harmful potential narratives. But you guys can do these can use similar sort of uh, strategies amongst yourselves. Telling somebody or thinking that you have a degenerative disc disease is not an accurate way to think about it. It's just age related and it's unlikely to be the source of your pain, for example, if you've been diagnosed with that. Also kind of frees you from thinking, well, I've got this degenerative disc disease and so I can't do anything about it because it's degenerative. 
I'm fragile. We would prefer that you think that you're self-sufficient, you're resilient. I mean, there's all these motivational posters up here too, right? So, so we've talked about what pain is, what low back pain is, uh, what it's not. We haven't really talked about the actual causes of low back pain, right? Where's, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the magic bullet here? What are, what are the causes uh, for the majority of low back pain? It should be clear by now that there is no one specific cause for low back pain. Again, very common diagnosis. 85% of the world's adults are gonna have low back pain sometime in their life. 90% of it is nonspecific. There's no one cause for this. It's not anatomical. There's no pain generator. Rather, there are many different factors that produce this pain experience. There, because there are biological, psychological, and social inputs into this pain experience for, the, for low back pain, we call this the biopsychosocial model. That's the kind of next step up from the biomedical model. And this is the current view of pain in the uh, medical world. So from a biological standpoint, we'll go through all of these. From a biological standpoint, the workload that an individual is exposed to plays a role, uh, such as the amount of exercise or occupational activity that they have to deal with. If you have a person who's never rucked, never lifted, never done any sort of uh, training before at all, they come to uh, basic training and get thrown into all of this. They, now they're exercising, they're lifting weights in the gym, they're doing PT, and they're, they're doing a bunch of extra uh, activity. That is a new challenge for them that they have not adequately prepared for. Might they experience pain? Maybe. Effectively, they have, they're not prepared for their orders that they've been given. Okay, so how, do, how would we reduce the risk of them developing pain from this uh, uh, mismatch? Well, we would have started training earlier. We would have exposed that person earlier and gradually increased the stress over time. Uh, one thing that can generate pain is having this sort of uh, training load or workload mismatch between what somebody is prepared to do and what they are asked to do. So that can be problematic. All right. This is a huge problem in the United States also as 80% of the United States does not actually meet the current exercise guidelines, which does involve twice weekly resistance training. Just a show of hands, you guys don't look, don't look around, so we're not using shame here. How many people actually lift weights twice a week or more? Oh, this is good, I'm so happy. Those of you who don't, didn't raise your hand, you know, just saying. It's okay to get in there and lift some weights. Uh, from a psychological and uh, from the psychological and social standpoints, we also have a very big problem. Um, there are learned threats from family members or close friends who've had low back pain or who have had uh, medical providers tell them like, hey, one thing that can cause low back pain would be a herniated disc or degenerative facet joint or something else. And so the first time that you experience low back pain, that person, that close friend or family member says, oh, it's probably your disc. Like, well, I wasn't even thinking about that it was related to my disc before, but now I am. And this is a whole, this is a social phenomenon, it, particularly in the United States, where we're thinking there's something, boom, anatomical that's causing this low back pain. And it's been handed down. It's in all of the occupational safety data stuff, right? You see a person trying to lift a box off the ground one way, they're bent over, they're using their back, and that's dangerous, right? There's like pain, like, cartoon pain, uh, uh, pain graphics there, and they're, oh, lift with your legs. Don't stress your back. Your back is fragile. If you're on social media, you can see people 
pretending to lift with a rounded back and then a mushroom cloud appears over their back. These are harmful narratives and they're pervasive. They seep into our subconscious as a society where we think our backs are very fragile. We can damage them very easily. We need to be careful. We only get one spine. So with all this in mind, what should we do? Well, the first thing is good news. Even though low back pain is super common, right? 85% of adults are going to have it. Uh, and the, most of these cases res resolve on their own in about four to six weeks. Four to six weeks. Most of them resolve on their own. I understand that the experience, particularly the, the first few days of having low back pain, you think this is the worst thing I've ever experienced. It's never going to end. Okay. I've been there. However, that sort of catastrophic thinking actually makes it worse. If you know now you've been inculcated that it's going to end in four to six weeks on average, you're already set up for more success than you were before walking into this, uh, to this presentation. Here's the other thing. I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. You're like, all right, I get it. You're saying it pains all this touchy feely emotional stuff. But what if it is a disc issue? What if I legitimately herniated a disc? I was doing the new ACFT, the trap bar deadlift test, and I herniated a disc, it shot across the room. What now, doctor? Well, the good news is, even if it was a disc issue, which again is only responsible for about two to 5% of, of low back pain, most disc is, uh, discs issues tend to resolve spontaneously on their own, meaning the herniation uh, regresses on its own. The worse the herniation is, the better percent, the higher percentage chance that it's going to resolve on its own. So it's called disc sequestration. It's a part of the fragment that's actually been ejected from the disc. It's floating around on its own, has a 96% chance, 96% chance of uh, spontaneously regressing on its own without you doing anything other than like living. Good news, right? So let's talk about some other things that people commonly ask for because they think it's going to make them better. People say, doc, look, got this pain. I need an x-ray. Need to make sure it's not something serious. Well, the first thing is imaging doesn't show pain. It only shows bony things. If we're talking about x-rays or additional non bony things, if we're talking about advanced imaging, like MRIs and CTs. Okay. So it doesn't show pain. The current recommendation is to not actually get an x-ray until after six weeks, unless there's a, a suspicion of something more serious like a cancer or an infection. Okay. A handful of other things that, that uh, you can, the doctor will be able to pick up on exam, which makes sense. So that six week mark, again, most people's low back pain should have resolved four to six weeks. All right. So after that, then you might be thinking if you're the medical provider, Hey, maybe I missed something. Okay. X-ray at that point might be something to do. The reason why we don't do it in the first six weeks, one, it doesn't change what we do. Getting an x-ray doesn't say, Ooh, you need to do exactly this. Okay. Doesn't show pain. And you might find something that's incidental. That's completely normal. Just a normal variation of anatomy, but subjects a person to a more extensive workup, like getting an MRI or getting a CT. Those who get an MRI for low back pain tend to do the same as those who don't or even worse in some cases, it's more incidence of disability. Also an MRI doesn't actually do a, a great job at finding issues. 
when you have different radiologists looking at the same images, they'll find different things and not tend to disagree with each other about what they actually find because we're humans and we do that. So my favorite study, and uh, I was really trying to not quote any single study in this particular uh, lecture, but this is my favorite study. Uh, they sent this little old lady to uh, 10 different uh, radiologists or MRI centers, each had their own different radiologist, right? And so it's the same spine, they're taking a picture of the same spine, and these radiologists with all similar levels of training are interpreting this, and they didn't agree on any one single finding. There were over 50 different findings that they reported across these 10 different MRI centers. They didn't, not one single one was repeated across all 10, okay? And they found a ton of false positives, meaning they identified stuff that wasn't there. I know what we're thinking, that MRI is this gold standard, we need it, it's gonna help us, but in the case of low back pain, probably not. The common thread is that the military doesn't wanna spend the money, they're tightwads. It just really doesn't help in this case. In my experience with military medicine, I did two rotations at Navy Portsmouth Hospital, a psych rotation and an emergency medicine rotation. They tend to spend more money on medicine. They're like, ah, it's the military, they'll pay for this, order all the tests. Thing is, it just doesn't really help and it may in fact hurt you here, right? So think about it, if you had, if you have low back pain as an adult, it just started a week ago, you finally go to see the doctor because you're worried, which is fine, this is normal, okay? And they say, you know what, let's get an MRI. You get an MRI and it shows three herniated discs, which you didn't know that you hurt, had before, okay? If you hadn't come to this presentation, you might be thinking, boom, there it is. Not the song, which is Woomp, there it is. This was boom, there it is. Three herniated discs, that's what's caused my pain. I will be in pain until these discs reabsorb or until I have surgery or until these discs spontaneously regress, which is not the case. Again, many asymptomatic individuals, 50 to 70% of those ages 40 to 49 will have herniated discs on MRI and be asymptomatic. I know this because during my medical residency, I got an MRI and it showed three herniated discs and I didn't even have back pain. I didn't, that's not why I got the MRI. Anyway, yeah, that was a traumatic experience. I still try to think, not think about it anymore. So advanced imaging, we probably wouldn't recommend. We probably wouldn't push for it. Hopefully you guys are on board with that. Next thing people say, all right, well, what about meds, doc? No imaging, you work for big pharma. What meds should I take? Unfortunately, uh, we don't have a lot of good solutions here from a medical medication standpoint. So over-the-counter medications like Tylenol and ibuprofen have either no evidence that they help uh, in low back pain for Tylenol, does not help, would not recommend, or very little benefit, ibuprofen, would not recommend. And that's, again, people, uh, it kind of makes sense because back pain, particularly the majority of this, uh, that ba of back pain that people experience is not inflammatory. So people say, yeah, but I take ibuprofen when I have low back pain or a little back tweak and it makes me feel better, why? It's like, well, it's hard to separate out the placebo effect from what's really happening. You're taking a medication, there's a ritual there, there's an expectation that you're gonna get better, and so you feel a little better, sometimes, okay? That being said, when it's actually widely studied, not a lot of good evidence there. Same thing, prescription medications like uh, steroids, like doc, I want an injection, or I wanna take uh, prednisone, I took that once, made me feel great. No really good evidence that this, these uh, actually have any benefit here. Uh, opioids, very little benefit. 
um, in chronic low back pain, so lasting more than six weeks, but harmful in the long term. You guys have been keeping up with the news, you know that to be the case. So this should all make sense to you that just taking a medication probably doesn't do a great job at addressing low back pain due to the multifactorial nature of the pain experience. If it was just a biological cause, then sure, maybe medications would be more efficacious, they'd work better. But because there are biological, psychological, social, environmental inputs all to this sort of pain experience, it makes sense that medication's not a magic bullet, okay? Similarly, if we're looking for this one cause of pain, the pain generator, we're gonna be on a wild goose hunt and we may misattribute the pain experience to a twud, which is a time wasted on useless detail. We might look at imaging and say, oh, I have facet joint degeneration, that's what's causing this, and until I get that fixed, I'll never be whole. I'll never not have low back pain. Could hold you back in the long term, okay? So since there are biological and psychosocial inputs that drive this pain experience, those are the targets we should actually address. So let's talk about those. Biological, let's talk about exercise. So I started this earlier on saying that one of the reasons why people, one of the biological causes where people can have this most common type of low back pain is when the training stress or workload outstrips what somebody is prepared for. It increases too quickly uh, and too much. So preparing for the demands via training that gradually increases over time is how we would address this. So we would start people with something that they can tolerate today, right now, okay? and then gradually increase that stress over time. I know this is just shocking. But this is also how we would start treating this type of low back pain. So let's say somebody tried the new uh, trap bar deadlift test, right? And they said that they had back pain after that. That's a traumatic experience. They know they have to do this test to keep their job, okay? And they did it once and then they had back pain afterwards. They're so like, look, I did the deadlift and then now my back hurts and now you're telling me I have to do it again anyway? So what would we do in that situation? Well, one, one biological cause for uh, somebody to have back pain after that is if they've never deadlifted before, and now you put them into a competitive or testing situation, it's probably not the best way to do it. What we would rather have them do is be exposed to it under a less challenging, uh, a less challenging situation and gradually work them up to the test they're gonna have to do. That's you know, training over a longer period of time. That might mean starting with just the empty bar, okay? In this case, some, after somebody already has pain, what we wanna do is desensitize them. We wanna reduce the threat. So they even see the trap bar, they say, no, I can't, they have PTSD. What I'd love to get them to do is do a trap bar deadlift from a reduced range of motion, maybe from a higher platform, right? Or if they were previously doing it with weight on the bar, do it with just the empty bar something where they could do the movement as close as possible to the movement that they're gonna be asked to do, but that they're able to tolerate. We're gonna to try to desensitize them, reduce the threat, reduce the fear around that. Now, if they won't do it at all, we'll do something else that's similar. We'll gradually have to move farther and farther away, okay, from, from what they need to prepare for. But we'd like to do, what we'd like to do, ideally, is if somebody said, look, I hurt my back doing the trap bar deadlift, what do you recommend I do? I think you should do the trap bar deadlift again, but at a more manageable load, whether that's total weight, total reps, sets, et cetera, the whole training load needs to be appropriate for what you can handle right now. And that gotta be, has to be gradually built up over time, all right? Getting stronger over time is going to help 
uh, the individual or you to be more tolerant of different stresses, particularly those around uh, physical activity. It also helps build self-efficacy. So if, I, if someone comes in to me and says, hey, I have back pain, I did it while I was doing the trap bar deadlift for, my new, for the new army physical fitness test, what do you recommend, it, recommend that I do? I'd say, look, I think, you know, I'd ask them what was your previous exercise history and uh, get that information and I'd say, I think you need to do the trap bar deadlift in addition to these other exercises to uh, uh, get you fit, uh, fit for duty. Um, and here's how I would do that. And you need to be in charge of this. Get the process of going through uh, this sort of training-based rehabilitation builds self-efficacy. You're the one who's responsible to get better. You don't need to come see me multiple times a week for an adjustment, for a massage, for a pep talk. Rather, I want to give you the power to manage this on your own. All right. Uh, the last part of this with respect to exercise is a term we call uh, auto-regulation, which is a fancy way of saying adjusting things based on the amount of resources that you have. So imagine a situation where you're super, uh, you're sleep deprived, you're, or you're really sad, or really upset, or you're really hungry, or something uh, that ultimately uh, puts you not at your best. Relationship stress, occupational stress, something like that, okay, and it's really bad. And you're not able to perform up to your best. You're not able to tolerate as much uh, training stress as you would when everything's going your way. So our recommendation would be instead of just pushing through it because pain don't hurt and pain is weakness leaving the body, is to have a sort, some sort of stop gap in place where you don't end up uh, uh, pushing too, too far too quickly. Um, so easy ways to do this. Most of your training sessions that you're doing in the gym, because all of you are now gonna be engaging in resistance training, most of your training sessions, if you were going to rate how hard they were, how fatigued you were at the end of the training session, should be about six to eight on a scale of one to 10. If at the end of every training session, you're like, that was a 10. I've never been more tired than this after exercise. This is it. That's probably too much for you. It's probably too much. On the other hand, if it's a two, you're like, I'm fine. It's probably not enough to encourage change okay six to eight is kind of that sweet spot and so during periods of high stress right from whatever for whatever reason keeping it in that ballpark is going to kind of keep you safe from a training perspective you're unlike you're not going to be able to ideally push yourself into that hey i did too much for for the available for what i was prepared for okay so for, that's from an exercise standpoint what should we do from a psychosocial standpoint the first thing we can do and what we're trying to do right now is education but what pain is, why people have pain. There's no pain generator, we talked about that. Pain doesn't necessarily, necessarily equal harm, okay? Like harm to the tissue or tissue damage. Anybody, if you know anybody who's been uh, to war and maybe still has shrapnel in their, their body, that's the definition of tissue damage and they may or may not have pain from that, for example, okay? And we, during this educational period, we'd also like to give you tools so that you can self-manage, whether that's exercise advice, whether that's managing your training, whether that's uh, new information about uh, just straight up what doesn't cause pain. All of these things can be helpful. So that can be super useful. And then finally, from a social standpoint, I'd really like to encourage all of us, everybody in this room, to watch our words and actions, uh, what we say to each other and how we act towards each other uh, with respect to pain. 
So if you happen to see a woman or a man fall off a pull-up structure onto the ground, get up and walk away just fine, just go on living your life. You don't need to go over and ask them if they have back pain now and tell them to sit down and then go on WebMD. They're probably gonna be fine, all right? If you have low back pain, we would highly encourage you to stay calm, to not catastrophize it and saying, oh, this is probably something traumatic because it's probably not, okay? And then to try to uh, uh, talk yourself into self-managing. If you need a, a professional counsel, we'd like you to see a, prof uh, a healthcare provider who's trained up on this stuff. And then when we're talking to friends about what causes pain, somebody says, ah, oh, yeah, it's my, it's my, I have a bad disc, that's what's causing the pain. If you feel comfortable talking to them about this stuff, you might try to engage in a conversation where you can provide them more information. If it's your Uber driver, maybe just say, oh yeah, that's wild, and then don't say anything else. It's a long drive from here to Barstow, as I found out yesterday. <laughs> All right, so let's wrap this up with some take-home messages. Take-homes here. Pain is an experience that we have in order to try to protect ourselves from a perceived threat. The threat is a combination of many different factors. It's not just one thing. Anything that increases that threat is going to increase, has the likelihood of increasing our pain. So whether that's fear, whether that's not knowing, like what's going on, all right, or a learned experience, all of those things can increase pain. Most low back pain is not due to something serious like a fracture, mass, or infection. Most of it resolves in four to six weeks on its own. We covered, I think, in some pretty uh, uh, good detail that it's, mostly not, it's uh, most likely not related to some anatomical issue like a disc, facet joint, or anything like that. To treat and reduce the risk of low back pain, we need to exercise and build tolerance and reduce sensitivity. Motion is lotion, all right? So if you're having low back pain, the worst thing you can do is be sedentary, not exercise. The best thing you could do is try to do exercise, uh, as, uh, an exercise that's very similar to what you were doing when you got hurt, all right? Potentially with a reduced load, potentially with a reduced range of motion, potentially with an altered tempo. The idea is, again, uh, not to be scared of it and to desensitize you to, uh, uh, to that exercise, to that uh, motion. It's all about violation expectation in that instance, meaning that you expect yourself to have pain when you bend over, for example, if you hurt yourself deadlifting. Well, we'd like to prove to you that that's not always gonna be the case. And if we can violate that expectation, we can put you on this path towards um, improving self-efficacy and you being able to self-manage this on your own. And then finally, ideally, you would all be part of a social change revolution to change the way that we all think and talk about back pain in society. Because we can't do this on our own. There's only two of us. But as we get to kind of spread this message to folks, the idea is that this becomes less and less of a problem. I thank you for your time. We'll do a Q&A now. Again, uh, as mentioned in the beginning, we're gonna, we have some, um, some Q&A here. Uh, we have some, some pre-formatted questions, again, that people have asked that we'll go through. Um, just to kick it off, I'll start with the first question. Um, one of the questions when should I see a doctor about back pain versus trying to treat it on my own? Oh, cool. Let's start off. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I got the mic now. Uh, so this is actually a very difficult question. Like, when is my back pain bad enough to see a doctor? So I'll cut to the end. Um, if you're concerned about it, if you have a fear that's generated about this, or if you're just want, seeking some reassurance, ideally, you would see a doctor who would give you a similar message to what I just gave you. Uh, the problem is that 
most people generate their current thoughts and fears, et cetera, about low back pain because they saw a doctor. So our fear is that you would see a healthcare provider and they would uh, potentially harm you with an incorrect message. Now, I, hopefully that's not gonna happen here in Fort Irwin. I don't know what the turnover is here, but we're gonna be talking to the medical professionals this, this evening. So the broad recommendation is that if you're concerned, you should definitely see a doctor and I can't tell you to not see a doctor. I can't do that. Um, on the other hand, I would wanna make sure that you're getting the correct information. Um, also, sign like very, very, uh, 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 serious signs like, hey, I lost the ability to control my bowel and bladder. I am, uh, I can't walk, or I am, you know, becoming paralyzed in a rapid uh, uh, time frame. Or uh, there was a mass trauma sort of thing. You're like, hey, I got a, I have a gunshot wound. Pretty sure it's close to my back. Those reasons, you know, I'm not trying to make light of these situations, but those are all situations where we would recommend seeing a doctor. But the overall recommendation uh, would be if you're concerned about it and you're reasonably certain that you're gonna get good information about this, you should see a doctor. Yeah, I generally agree with that. I think there are some of the caveats that he mentioned. For example, there's some, some uh, research that just came out, for example, last month on the um, kind of typical management of back pain in primary care and emergency medicine settings. And it seems that a relative minority, like less than 20% of people are given like correct evidence-based information when they see these uh, practitioners uh, in the clinic, which is part of why we're doing what we're doing, trying to go around and educating uh, clinicians on this. Um, because a lot of this research says that clinicians tend to overuse imaging, getting too many x-rays and MRIs that aren't actually necessary and can be harmful, and not giving enough reassurance, advice, and information uh, to patients on how they can best self-manage this stuff. So that's why, um, you know, hopefully we have some, some uh, clinicians here today that um, will find some of this information helpful. But I agree, if you're concerned, you can see somebody. The thing that I would point out here in terms of one caveat is that okay. you can see how, given how complex pain is, Dr. Feigenbaum laid out, and it's due to this complex interaction of lots of different things, it reflects how much threat you perceive. Anything that increases the perception of threat, how scary, how dangerous you you perceive it to be, that can actually increase your pain intensity regardless of what's actually going on in the tissues, for example. So sometimes we'll have people who say, it hurts really, really bad, so that means whatever's going on has to be really, really bad. That doesn't necessarily follow. You can have quite severe pain and you can show up and get evaluated and we may not be able to find a clear reason for why it's there. So just severity of pain itself is not the best metric uh, to use here. Um, but again, if you're worried, if you have any of those concerning signs or symptoms, then that would be a reason to get seen and hopefully the person that you see knows uh, kind of the correct messages to be delivering on this topic. Let's, let's, let's use a loud mouth. Oh, loud mouth. All right. All right, second question. Why does sitting for a long time cause back pain? Oh, why does sitting for a long time sometimes cause back pain. Uh, I mean, sometimes it do be like that, you know? No, uh, <laughs> I had a bet that I couldn't use that. And I was like, you don't know me very well. Um, yeah, so I think this, the underlying question here is like, is there a particular posture that's dangerous or that's, that generates pain um, reliably across populations? The answer to that is no. There's no bad posture or good posture that like would prevent you from ever having pain while you sit in a certain position for a long period of time. People can tolerate different things based on their preferences, based on what they've been previously exposed to, based on their previous learning, and based on what people have told them. If you went through an educational system or a home life where you have to sit like this, otherwise bad things happen to you, you might have negative expectations and associations with certain postures and that could certainly influence um, uh, 
you know, how you react to sitting in a uh, position for a long period of time. That being said, it's not unusual for people who uh, sit uh, in a, uh, for a long period of time or obtain a uh, or maintain a certain posture for a long period of time to sometimes have pain with that. And so moving from that is totally normal and fine. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you or defective with you. It's just, it happens. Yep, I would echo that again. We're gonna have a lot of consistent messaging here, as you'll find. Um, I think our bodies do best when we're moving. And so you can become sensitized, which is the way we describe this in terms of starting to experience pain. You can become sensitized to really and almost any position if it's held for a really, really, really long uh, period of time, uh, depending on the individual's tolerance. So I would agree that sometimes it happens, and it doesn't always happen. You'll note that if you look around the room, everybody in here is sitting with a different posture. And I don't think that if we did a study of you guys, we'd be able to clearly correlate the particular posture that you guys are using uh, with pain. There's tons of people who are sitting here whose spines, believe it or not, are a little bit flexed in the way they're sitting right now, and that's okay. Our spines are do just fine with flexion, with extension, with lateral bending. Um, that's that's the way we are. So I would encourage you, if you experience that, the solution is just to move and not to worry uh, a ton about that. You can keep it. Okay. Um, we, we touched on this one a little bit, but I want to I want to touch base on it again. So, question was: Don't things like rocking sit-ups, lifting all day, cause back pain? Shouldn't I avoid these activities if I have back pain? Good question. <laughs> uh, so, so I think Jordan laid out a good case uh, for why the bigger thing that we care about is preparation. Are you prepared to do what you're trying to do? That's the bigger uh, that's the bigger concern here. So. You know, we both train uh, usually about four times a week. We train quite a lot, and, we, and as a result of that, we tolerate a lot of training very well. We don't tend to experience a ton of pain as a result of it. Or even like soreness. Is even, yeah, we don't even get sore anymore from the amount of training that we do. Whereas if we took uh, somebody who doesn't train very much, or probably even some, anybody at random in the audience, and put them on the training program that we're both using, uh, it would probably be tolerated poorly. And you would probably have an increased risk, although by no means would you be guaranteed to experience pain. You might have an increased risk of it. So preparation is the main thing that we have to recommend in this case from a physical training standpoint. And then all the education, psychological stuff. That that's kind of the two prongs that we come at this from. It's physical preparation, psychological, mental preparation uh, for this stuff. Um, are you ready to do what you're trying to do? Um, what was the last part of the question again? Oh, should we avoid? Should I avoid? Yes. So that's the that's the other thing. Uh, one uh, common idea belief that people have is that uh, I should avoid things that hurt. And in fact, that's like a typical joke that's made about doctors. If you go to a doctor, they tell you this hurts. They say what? Don't do it. Don't do that thing. Uh, that's actually the precise opposite of what we would tell you if you came to us uh, with with that sort of a, a complaint. And it reflects again this. Uh, incorrect idea that pain means that I'm causing damage, right? If that's what pain is, then sure, then it totally makes sense. The problem is that that's not what pain means. Pain is poorly related to tissue damage. It doesn't mean you're actively causing harm to your tissues. Pain is instead a perception of threat rather than active tissue damage. So avoidance is a poor strategy. And when we do research on individuals who have these kind of avoiding tendencies, who tend to avoid things that hurt, what we end up seeing is they get progressively more disabled over time because they do less. And then every time they try to do something new, they might have a little pain, they avoid that. They avoid every little thing that hurts until finally they're like, I can't move, I can't do anything, I'm disabled, and I'm like hopelessly broken. So instead, rather than avoiding things that hurt, we need to reconsider our conceptualization of why does it hurt? Am I prepared to do this thing I'm trying to do? Is there a modification to it that I can do? And you have to engage that activity to make it less threatening. Because again, it's about threat and not tissue damage.
Yep. Uh, just to add some a little nuance here, sprinkle some nuance sauce on this. The uh, you know people, particularly with the new uh, uh, fitness, physical fitness test with the trap bar deadlift, people are like that is inherently dangerous. There's idea that there are like uniquely dangerous movements compared to others, or uniquely dangerous um, exercises compared to others. And I just want to like drive home the point that overall exercise is exceedingly safe, exceedingly safe. And so, just some numbers for you guys: um, overall, the average risk uh, injury risk for resistance training. This is for all types of resistance training: so bodybuilding, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, CrossFit, strongman competitions, Highland Games competitors, where they wear the skirts. I think they prefer kilts, but skirts nonetheless. Um, the injury rates on average are about two to four injuries per thousand participation hours. Two to four uh, injuries per thousand participation hours. To put that in perspective, American football is close to 60 injuries per thousand participation hours. Soccer is close to 40 injuries per thousand participation hours. Walking has an injury rate of about one injury per thousand participation hours. Gardening is right in that two and a half injuries per thousand participation hours and nobody's saying don't garden come on guys those pots are too heavy that spade is just it's not ergonomically friendly you're gonna hurt your wrist um, so i think it's just again these are there are these social uh, uh expectations that picking something up off the ground using your back is inherently dangerous and what we'd rather have you do is train your back to make it more resilient more tolerant of uh different sort of situations that you're likely to face in life in the field um, trust, trust your back. Trust your back. Yeah. That's a good t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. So if some people with back pain need surgery, why wait to get an MRI? How does my doctor know whether my pain is because of something that needs surgery or not? Okay, so the question has to do with surgery and MRIs and things like that. I think there's an underlying premise in this or an assumption in this question that uh, a significant proportion of people with back pain do actually need surgery, which is not the case. Um, again, that's some of the statistics that he laid out at the beginning, the overwhelming majority of cases of back pain are not of sinister kind of causes, meaning they're not dangerous or life-threatening. The overwhelming majority of those tend to get better on their own. Um, and in fact, even if when we look at the data on how people do with surgery for back pain, yep. the outcomes are not particularly great. In fact, one of the most common surgeries that's done, so patients might get diagnosed with this so-called degenerative disc disease, uh, disease that we, we don't particularly like, and they may get offered a surgery called a spinal fusion, where they fuse the vertebrae together. And you might think, oh man, things are nice and stable now, they're gonna take care of themselves, it's no longer fragile, brittle, however you wanna think about it. Well. We have no good evidence that that surgery is effective for patients with this particular condition. In fact, the, UK, the guidelines in the UK over in, uh, over in Europe for back pain say, this surgery should not be offered to patients unless it's part of a clinical trial, a clinical trial to actually test it more rigorously. So there's a lot of assumptions here that like a ton of patients need surgery, so I may as well find out early. Well, the overwhelming majority of people with back pain don't, in fact, require surgery. On top of that, you can layer the issues with MRI that Dr. Feigenbaum talked about in terms of the reliability of MRI, the likelihood of getting false positives, the fact that once you get an MRI, it medicalizes the back pain, right? So he talked about how back pain is very common, overwhelming majority, like almost everybody experiences it. And almost everybody, it tends to, in the acute setting, tends to get better on its own time. I tend to compare that like having a common cold, right? Almost everybody experiences a common cold. 
and almost everybody gets better from their common cold in a relatively short period of time, right? But we over-medicalize back pain a lot. And getting an MRI is one way that we over-medicalize it. And suddenly we have tons of scary words, labels on our MRI report that tell us that we have degeneration and, and instability and all kinds of things that scare people. And again, what, is, what does that fear do? Increases the perception of threat. More threat, more pain. So getting an MRI is not a benign thing. It has a quite significant potential for harm. And so it should only be done in very selected situations. And those are situations that when we go through medical training, we at least get trained on how to discern when we should obtain something like that. Now, whether all medical practitioners kind of practice in that pattern or obey those sorts of recommendations is a different story because we mentioned there's tons of inappropriate imaging that gets done. But that's kind of how ideally this would play out is that people wouldn't get inappropriate MRIs because they're much, much, much less helpful than people tend to think, as is surgery for back pain as well. Okay. Last one. So I've tried everything for my back pain. I did physical therapy, took all the medication, got a new mattress, paid for a chiropractor, but it's still just as bad as it was a year ago. And my MRI was normal. What else can I do? Yeah, this is tough. So uh, just having back pain that persists through what most would consider, you know, running the gamut of all available treatment options. Um, it's kind of a weird sentiment though, to think like, oh, I, I when people say I, I tried physical therapy, it didn't work for me. It's like I failed physical therapy. Kind of like saying with another medical condition, like oh, I failed medicine, so medicine just didn't work for me. That's like, well, there are many different, like you know, paths you can go down within medical treatment. For example, you can, you know, there are medications, there are surgeries, there are you know, all sorts of different treatments, and so to exhaust all possible medical options, that's uh, quite unlikely. And same thing with like physical therapy. So if you went to the physical therapist and they did not appropriately educate you, they did not appropriately prescribe physical activity. They did not appropriately, you know, sort of build the sort of self-efficacy amongst yourself to, to deal with the stuff, then you didn't really get physical therapy. Doesn't mean there wasn't a physical therapist in the room, you just didn't get physical therapy that, that's adequate and appropriate for this condition. So what, do you, what would I recommend people doing? I would recommend seeing a, a provider who's up to date on this sort of pain science stuff and get started in the right direction. I, I don't necessarily care what mattress you have. I, don't, I wouldn't recommend routinely going to see a chiropractor. I wouldn't recommend trying to graduate to the next step of management. My concern would be if this has been lasting for months and months and months, then you know, depending on my medical uh, sort of evaluation of that person, I might, in that case, look at you know, imaging, although they said a normal MRI. So that's already been done. So in this case, I'd probably start back at the beginning and make sure that the, again, the education is there, the physical activity recommendations are there, and then, and then go from there. But it sounds like this person has kind of like a, a defeatist attitude, like, I can't be helped. There's nothing left to do. What do you recommend? Like, I mean, do you want to get better? You know, is the, is the bigger thing. And I saw so I started at the beginning. Yeah, I think seeking out alternative, like, you know, if somebody goes to a physician and uh, things don't work out, the next thing they typically do is they get a second opinion, for example. But for, for, for some reason, when patients go through physical therapy and they don't respond, they just write off physical therapy, like, as an entire field. It's like writing off, like, modern medicine, like, uh, I guess it just didn't work for me, right? So there are other, there are other therapists, and there's a huge, huge, enormous uh, variety among physical therapists in terms of their clinical approach to this kind of thing, uh, the type of education that they'll give, the kind of words that they'll use with patients. I mean, I've worked with some who have been profoundly harmful to their patients because of the way they describe these things, the way they explain them, the types of, uh, the way they frame exercise. They might frame it in a way as you have to move this very particular way to be safe because otherwise it's dangerous. 
danger, threat, pain, right? So that's harm versus other physical therapists that might take a much different uh, approach to this kind of thing. So I think seeking out other opinions on that can be helpful. Um, the education, what we've provided is just a start. Um, we're gonna provide the clinicians later on with some resources that they can kind of then feed on to you guys because there are other uh, educational resources uh, on the internet and apps and things like that that can be useful for this. For example, like a cognitive behavioral therapy type approach to help you kind of reframe the way you conceptualize this, the way you respond to it. Because one thing that is uh, that can be frustrating for patients and for clinicians is that, again, we have no magic bullet, so to speak, for pain. We cannot uh, take any given patient and take their pain down to zero, that may be an unrealistic goal for some people. So sometimes what we suggest is actually uh, shifting what we call the therapeutic target, shifting our goals. Maybe we're not aiming for a pain score of zero, which we don't necessarily love pain scores either, but rather we want people to be able to function as well as they possibly can, even if there's some discomfort present. So that sometimes is what we have to end up negotiating, what's realistic and what's not. So sometimes optimizing function, um, which can be done through appropriately dosed physical activity, education, and again, de-threatening physical activity. That's the main goal. We want to make movement, activity, exercise, doing the things you want to do less threatening, and therefore people's pain will tend to reduce as a result. So again, those, that wraps up the questions that we had before, but we'd like to take the opportunity now at this point for anybody in the audience, if you have questions um, regarding what was discussed today or back pain or training, like what, what should you do about it? Please. Good, hey, good morning. Um, Hi. Some of the things that I'm seeing here with my soldiers are, we spend a lot of time in the box, which is the desert and Humvee. Um, most of them don't complain about back pain until they come off of the trail, out of the box, like months later. Because mm -hmm. I know you talk about behavior and maybe not stressing yourself enough. Some of them are stressing themselves so much that they're not feeling the pain until two, three months after the fact. Sure. What is that? Yeah, so I think... Yeah, so the question is about... Uh, I think everybody heard, but... <laughs> I think the first thing is, I don't know that I would pay much, that much attention to the time, like the temporal relationship between they were out in the field and then two or three months later they had back pain, therefore the, being out in the field caused the back pain. So just the report of back pain itself, I think would, I would just dissociate it and I would say, well, they have back pain now. They're not reporting out in the field, one, perhaps because they can't actually report it, you know, it's just not part of the social hierarchy or they're unable to do that or the situations that they're in kind of distracts them from having it. Um, but the other thing is I would just, I wouldn't change anything as far as how I work through this based on that relationship. I would, again, assume that it's nonspecific low back pain, which again, doesn't mean that it, we're minimizing and brushing it off. It just means that there's no specific cause. And then it's likely to resolve quickly. And then our recommendation would be, um, for physical activity and using non-threatening language and sort of an edu education it would be like how I would address it, which is not different than any other type of back pain. Yeah, that was the kind of the first thing that came to my mind is that there's a clear assumption of a relationship there that may not really be kind of a driving factor here. And they may be experiencing pain because they're humans, just like all the rest of us tend to experience pain. I can think about any number of things that I do on a regular basis, that I do routinely, that I've done in the past few months. And if I tried to, if I, you know, I experienced some back pain actually when we were on our way here yesterday during our drive, probably because I have not moved in a very long period of time. But if I had said, you know, oh, well, I've been 
flying to a different state once a month for every for the past few months. Maybe flying is uh, you know this much is causing my back pain, or um, you know any number of other potential relationships. I might be led down erroneous paths. I might have, there might be a bunch of red herrings um, that might distract me from addressing the back pain um, as a normal human experience that again we all have in the same fashion that you described in the talk. So I don't think that's necessarily as unique of a situation as it may seem to be on the surface in terms of its relationship with the field work. It's back pain, and and uh, you know we still have. Kind of good evidence in terms of how we should be approaching it, as, as, as was laid out here. I don't think that's particularly a, a, a situation needing very special uh, treatment. Other question? Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Hi. So I just wanted to move on to this question about the field work. Okay. Um, so, as I mean, one of the physicians here, I think we would probably all have the same experience that a lot of soldiers come in and they attribute their back pain to wearing their gear, sure. like wearing their body armor bouncing around in the, like, in the desert of Mahatmi and they're attributing their back pain to that, um, which I don't personally feel is a particularly harmful activity. Right. Um, are you able to comment on <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So a couple of things here. I don't have. I'm not aware of any evidence uh, where it's actually looking at soldiers wearing armor and then like their back pain incidents. However, there is some data on kids and uh, adolescents wearing backpacks that are quite heavy, and there's no difference in the between the weight of the backpack and the, and the incidence of their low back pain which would lead me to believe just, you know, as a similar relationship, it's probably, it's unlikely to be that. The only mechanism that I could think about that would maybe reliably cause back pain would be more acute would be if there's actual trauma of like the armor itself, like bruising the individual, which is not what we're talking about here, you know, right? And I don't think it's, that's what you're missing. So I think actually it's the narrative here that somebody comes back from being in the box. Did I get that right? Okay, cool. Sick, I'm ready, <laughs> put me in. No. Um, they get back from that and they're thinking, I have back pain now. It's probably because, you know, because then they're like, well, what could have caused it? I didn't have back pain before I went. I didn't have back pain yesterday. So what could have caused it? Oh, I was bouncing around in this Humvee with terrible suspension with all this gear on. That's probably it because there's a mechanical source here. That was the pain generator. And so I think from a clinical standpoint, the first thing would be education about, you know, just really trying to get at that narrative like and challenge that narrative and, and, uh, in a nice way um, so that somebody would maybe not be thinking or looking for this mechanical pain generator. That'd be kind of be where I would start. I think the, the backpack comparison is a good one. I did um, a research review for our company last year on this topic. There's a pretty large study on uh, school children on this, and I would echo that there wasn't a clear correlate, any correlation between the actual weight of the kids' backpacks and the pain symptoms. What there was a correlation between was the perceived weight. In other words, even if there wasn't an actual difference in weight, the kids' perception of, oh, my backpack is so heavy versus kids who thought, oh, my backpack's, you know, it's no big deal. That perception, rather than the actual weight, appeared to make a difference in people's likelihood of having symptoms. So there is something to the psychological aspect here, the perception um, and the narrative around this, because perhaps they're interacting every time a group comes back and they talk with the new guys who are about to go out and they hear about this is happening to all of us and setting some expectation that this is gonna happen to you when you get back. Um, so there's a perception at play there and the expectations. 
Additionally, there is a possibility that, again, um, people may just be undertrained, and so wearing this gear, this equipment, might be more of a load yep. than they were adequately prepared to handle before they went out, which is another argument for getting really strong and really jacked uh, by the time you need to go out and handle this stuff. Um, I think that is a better way to prepare yourself to handle this stuff, not only physically fortifying yourself, but also when you're really strong, uh, putting that stuff on, you're gonna perceive it as, oh, this is you know, no big deal. And that perception may be what's mediating the difference in the likelihood compared to the actual weight or the actual mechanics of it, because that's what we see Again, in this data on backpacks and in other in other areas where the absolute loading is less of a predictive uh, factor than the perception. What was the backpack score in there that study? The I don't remember. You don't remember? All right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Morning. Um, Morning. I had a question about the well, seeing as we have a new APFT coming up, uh, ACFT. Yeah. Uh, the deadlift is going to be probably the biggest uh, thing that you're going to encounter problems with. Do you suggest having to train with the X bar or is the traditional deadlift bar suffice? Oh, sure. Yeah, so the training differences, like recommendations for how to get good at trap bar deadlifting. <laughs> um, so in general, uh, our view on this is that strength is specific, meaning that's specific to the movement you train, the velocity you train it at, the range of motion you train it through, the rep ranges you train it at, et cetera. So um, for this particular test, which is more of a maximal strength display than like hey, how many reps can you do with you know, a really light weight in a certain period of time, which would be like a, a repetition effort set or like an endurance test. So this is like a max strength test. Our recommendation would be if you have access to the trap bar, to the X bar, use it, because that's the most specific thing you can do to the test. And also most of your training with that bar should probably, probably be done in like that three to six rep range since those are the reps you're gonna be tested on. Doesn't mean that every set needs to go, you turn it up to 11, you know, max effort. It just means that training sets of 10 or 20 or, you know, higher reps are all less specific to the actual test that you're trying to prepare for. So most of, if I was writing a program, exercise program for somebody who has to do this test, most of the work, if they have access to a trap bar would be use the, use the hex bar, do sets of, you know, three to six. And most of your sets should be at about, uh, uh, you know, where you could do another two or three reps at the end, not like a full on max effort. Uh, sort of set because I don't think that tends to have uh, produce as, as good of a training adaptation for the amount of effort and fatigue that it, it gives you. So you should have a few reps left in the tank. Um, if you don't have access to a hex bar and you have to prepare for that test, what do? Well, I think you should do a regular, you know, use a straight bar, uh, a regular barbell to do the deadlift because in, the, in lieu of not being able to prepare specifically, I th still think you should have some preparation rather than just say, well, I don't have this bar, so I'm not going to do anything. That would be bad. That would be bad. But unfortunately, I think uh, you know people who have never done the trap bar deadlift before, and maybe never actually had to specifically prepare for this type of test, are uh, you know maybe they're not going to train for this at all, and then just go do the test, which you know not being prepared for the exposure is uh, problematic. So. Oh, oh, you want to talk? Yes. Ah. Yeah, um, I would I would emphasize that if you don't have access to a trap bar, pulling on a straight bar is just fine. And while the training adaptations that you get are to an extent specific, 
Uh, also, I would say that to the extent that you're performing a deadlift, whether yeah. it be with a straight bar or with a heavy kettlebell or whatever the case is, there is going to be some transference there. In other words, neither of us train with trap bars particularly frequently, but I feel confident that we would both be able to max the, the trap bar deadlift um, without much of an issue just because of our training base, how much training we've done, our exposure to this stuff, and how strong we've gotten over time. So again, it comes down to de-threatening the movement, so it's not scary and threatening because threat can correlate to pain um, and then preparation for what you're trying to do it's the physical side and the psychological side the, the two ways that we come at this problem what's the weight i think a one, 340 is it 140 is the low end or something like that and what's the high end 140 and 340 for a set of three come on yeah all right kilos <laughs> no <laughs> um one thing i see and i guess this is what i'd like you guys to touch base on is incorporating recovery into to training or how does recovery fit in with pain, um, especially if you get limited time or limited options for recovery? Uh, yeah, this is a complex question. Um, so first part of it, yeah, thanks. Uh, first, first thing I'll address is, is sleep. Uh, so if we had to like pick a handful of predictive things about like what would increase risk of uh, pain or people seeking care for pain, like lack of sleep is definitely one of them. Um, and three to four hours doesn't even come close to that, that cut, cut point we think is like seven hours and some change. Um, so yeah, if someone's at a period of higher stress, in fact, another interesting study was done on division one football players or effectively the same training, the exact same uh, exercise training, right? Um, uh, one period was during low academic stress. The other period was during finals week. So high academic stress training stayed the same injury rate doubled due to the higher academic stress. It wasn't because all oh, the tests were really hard, but they were just, they had more life stress. And so you're saying, okay, this, these people have like high, high stress situations. Uh, why are they having more pain? Like that, that jobs well with what we're experiencing here with respect. Yeah. With respect to recovery, honestly, the only thing that I think you can do in that case, since asking you to sleep more, and like have more time off seems uh, unlikely, um, would be to become very, very well trained prior to going on those mission, those missions. So effectively, how do you make yourself recover faster, better, uh, is, is becoming more trained. So the more trained you are, the faster you recover, the more training you're able to tolerate, the more stress you're able to tolerate. So again, effectively right now, like with respect to uh, our style of training, we are, we can tolerate a lot of training. And also we recover very, very quickly from that training, which is why we have to train so much in the first place. So, uh, in order to try to get better. So if you had an option to have like a substantial period of onboarding, like training time to get people uh, trained up and prepare them for this, that would be great. Unfortunately, I think that's more policy level, but I'm not. Yeah, it's not as easy as, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the sleep thing is, uh, it's definitely a huge risk factor, but this is also part of how, you know, Dr. Weigerman was talking about biological and psychosocial influences on the pain experience. And he's talking about how training load and fatigue, for example, can be one thing that influences from a biological standpoint. Uh, sleep is another one of these biological factors. If anybody here has had like a, uh, a flu infection, that's a big biological response. It's associated with tons of aches and pains all over your body for no clear reason. Things just start hurting, right? So there are all these biological things and sleep or lack of sleep is, is a big part of that. But given that that's one that in this particular training situation we may not be able to modify, then I agree that we need to modify other things as much as we're able to. So becoming very well trained is definitely a big one. And then uh, he mentioned during his talk this auto-regulation concept. Auto-regulation meaning that you are regulating the training stress that you expose yourself to based on the resources available. 
So maybe on a day when things are not going great, you might pull back on the training load a little bit to stay in that say six to eight out of 10 difficulty range. On a day when you're feeling really strong, then things might be a little heavier, you might do a little more. Uh, so kind of adjusting based on the resources you have available to train. Because these football players, for example, they did the same training, low stress, high stress. If I had to guess what would happen if that some uh, training during the low stress period and they did fine, and then during the high stress period they pulled back on their training stress a little bit, that would likely mitigate some of the risk for injury of course, or, or pain in that situation. So over the physical stimuli that you have control over, i.e. your own training, regulating it based on the resources you have available is a good strategy. And again, preparing as much as possible, getting very well trained uh, is one of the best ways physically you can fortify yourself in these situations. What's one thing you would prioritize because this is again, I face the battlefield. I agree. Get you know, the mo the, to the maximum ability you can get trained, but if you don't have the consistency to get, tra get trained, that's also tough. Yeah. So how? What's like one? What would you prioritize to address that? I mean, and there's no good answer to this question. No, there's no good answer because you're not giving me any opportunity to make a good answer. <laughs> I mean, you're telling me you have one week to train, and then you're out in the box, and you have no resources to train. So yeah, I know. Back to her question because that's yes. a problem. Yeah, so the idea would be prior to arrival then, I mean, resistance training is obviously the most underdosed uh, and underutilized sort of resource that we have here. So again, just population level, 80% of Americans do not do any sort of resistance training at all. I'm sure the people who come into the military are probably a little bit higher, uh, like they pro probably more of them do. But I think if you're communicating with people who are like about to sort of come here or, you know, potentially in the next three months, you know, be out in the box, like there needs to be a sort of training regimen that is that is given to them and that is heavily focused on resistance training because their PT that they're doing is heavily endurance-based. They're getting enough of that and that's unlikely to really uh, contribute to, to these symptoms. So I, I would try to, in advance, get people engaged in resistance training and then the idea would be while you're out in the box, that's sort of like you're in season. You're really just trying to maintain as much as you can. Um, so, and you're staying active. So I wouldn't be worried really about strength loss or anything there. I just would want people to come in strength, strong and well-trained. Um, and then having, again, these, all these narratives and education about what pain actually is. And ideally that would, that would be my, my, my the situation I prefer. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect that um, like either of us, for example, could go several weeks without training without an enormous amount of strength loss as a result because we have like 10 years of banked, over 10 years of banked training adaptation that's been accumulated. And that's one of the difficult things with this question is, you know, the premise was you have a week to train. And it's like, well, I don't want to say that it's too late at that point, but kind of, you know, like this, this is part of the big difficulty here is that this requires like a wholesale social cultural policy level change in terms of where the emphasis should be here um, with respect to pain, with respect to training and stuff like that. So more training earlier. You guys should have been training for this stuff like, you know, weeks to months ago, uh, at least. Thanks. Any other questions? Going once, going twice. Cool. All right, well, I just want to thank you guys for coming out. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. appreciate you listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. If you're over on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps us grow the channel. Also, consider sharing with a friend. It really helps us getting the word out about all the latest nuanced fitness and health information. Thank you so much. We'll catch you guys next time.